bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. I'm Britta Wedling, Editor-in-Chief of Bits and Pretzels, and this is a special live episode of our podcast. We are presenting my conversation with former Google CEO and Chairman Eric Schmidt at our Bits and Pretzels Networking Week, which is our online event answer to COVID-19. Clearly, Eric doesn't need a big introduction. He has shaped the tech industry as we know it today, from the epicenter of Silicon Valley for 20 plus years. Eric was originally hired at Google as sort of an adult supervisor for founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who at the time were in their 20s. But in fact, the three of them ran Google together and Eric led the vast expansion of Google into all aspects of our lives. In our conversation, we talked about the opportunities COVID-19 offers to entrepreneurs and Eric's opinion on why there are not more large tech companies in Europe, as well as why successful companies hire for intelligence rather than experience. And as benefiting for a virtual event, Eric joined us live from his apartment in New York. Welcome, Eric Schmidt. Well, thank you. And I'm so happy to be part of Oktoberfest in Munich this time from New York. Yeah, it's great to have you with us, obviously, uh, in this interesting time uh, right now. And it's also a difficult time. Uh, it's pretty clear that the coronavirus will live with us in one form or another for, for the rest of our lives. And everybody in the audience, all the entrepreneurs out there, the founders out there are interested in, you know, what they can do in, in this situation. So, so what do you think is like their role in, you know, helping uh, shaping society towards um, a better goal? moving forward? Well, I wish I were in Germany, which has actually gotten the infection and the democracy largely under control, but a lot of other countries don't have it. So I think the highest priority for all of us is to get the infection rate, technically R naught, below one and keep it there. If you don't get the disease, you won't die from it. It's pretty simple. And I think this is an, a global and national tragedy of proportions that will, people will be studying for 100 years. So what I would really like to see is uh, people focusing on antivirals, people focusing on new ways of doing air filtration, and all of the sort of tactical things that somehow the governments are not focusing on. You can build real businesses. In addition, the pandemic, as everybody knows, has accelerated transitions that were going under that were underway for 10 years in one year. So all of a sudden now, distance learning, the ability to do learning from home, work from home, and so forth are all huge markets. If I were an entrepreneur, I would try to figure out how to make education from home better, right? Because that's got a that's a huge demand right now. Obviously, it's also a time where you need a specific leadership right now, um, you know, navigating these times of uncertainties. Uh, what's your advice here? And is this situation harder than back in the days when you ran Google? Well, the pandemic is harder because it's a political problem, but it can be expressed in the same way you can run as a business. In a business, you have objectives. We have market share. We want to have happy employees, happy customers, and so forth and so on. In a pandemic, you want to get the infection rate down, and you want to basically do tr uh, testing and tracing. And during that time, you also want to keep the economy going. And it's a false choice to think that you have to choose between the disease and being healthy versus keeping the economy going. So the business problem, if you will, is keeping both both thoughts in your head and having metrics against them. Uh, globally, they've done a pretty good job of financing the deficits, 
but the economic harm, especially to women and uh, minorities, people who are not at the elites of these countries, um, is just going to be horrific, ignoring the death rate, which is, of course, profoundly terrible. So the way to say it, Britta, is that if I were running things, I would focus on a set of numbers that if you just keep minimizing them, you know things will get better. That's how you run a business, right? So if you know that the transmission rate in this case is declining, you're fine. It's the same thing in climate change. If your basic objective is reducing carbon, carbon loading, then if you keep reducing it, eventually you get to where you want. It's just a matter of the slope. And I think, you know, I wanted to come back to something that you said earlier. Um, it's obviously a time that kind of sorts out the market, right? I mean, back in the days when the dot-com bubble burst, it was Google coming out stronger after this crisis. And I think many entrepreneurs in our audience are asking themselves, what do I have to do right now to be among the winners of, of this pandemic? Could you share like some of your learnings from, from your time back then at Google? Well, we were fortunate during that period that uh, we had enough revenue that we didn't need a lot of financing. And so we decided to just keep expanding as fast as we could. And during a crisis, the leaders tend to emerge and the existing leaders, broadly speaking, tend to get stronger. In other words, there's a flight to quality. So if you're a startup and you're doing something that's useful right now, you should be able to accelerate quite quickly. A lot of startups are, they need more work. They're not quite ready. They need more features. They don't have the right product set and so forth. And there it's just a waiting game. Uh, what, what I like is that you've had a, uh, an enormous acceleration of online usage. And so if you're doing something which is a consumer product of any kind, your target market is that much larger. The business-to-business -business market is more complicated because, of course, the businesses themselves are in trouble. But the fact of the matter is they, too, are selling things more online. So it seems to me that if you go to cloud computing plus AI plus machine learning plus iOS and Android apps, right, that's sort of your design center because that's where everybody's going and you skate to where everybody's going. When you look in, you know, to the technology world, what's happening right now, it's really that, you know, the pandemic has been a bonanza for the big tech companies, right? Amazon is on the rise, Facebook, Google, Apple, they all bring in huge revenue. It's much more, it's much more difficult for, for smaller companies, you know, and we have many of them in our audience. So, so what's your advice here? How they can, how, what they can do? Again, I'm not sure that that's actually true. Uh, Zoom, right? has gone crazy and insane because they built a product that was needed at a precise time and they took over and they did a better job than their competitors. So what I think is correct is to say that if you can come up with a product which solves a need, you can get explosive use because everyone's moving online. If you're not doing that, then you've got to figure out what's wrong. Why, do you not, why are you not on that incredible curve? Maybe you don't have enough people. Maybe your engineering approach is wrong. Uh, maybe the product isn't quite useful enough. And that's, to me, the hard problem. But it seems to me that for startups, this is a golden period if you're an online startup for that reason. I, I don't agree that the success of the large companies is crowding out the small ones. I think the, the market is open for all. I think... Some people would slightly disagree here, um, you know, um, especially smaller startups here in, in, in Germany still have like some some trouble to, you know, get out of the ground, create growth, create create revenue. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from, from your perspective, you don't see like like any issues here. Well, no, but what, what I'm trying to say is that startups are always difficult. 
right? So Silicon Valley, we celebrate the winners, which are the one in a thousand. There are 999 that struggled along. But I think the model for success is clear, right? These are product successes that where the timing and the luck really worked and they explode. And we see them popping up one after the other after the other, and they're controversial and so forth. But the reason they're successful is they're solving a problem. Uh, one of the questions that I've not never been able to understand, and I've spent the last decade trying to promote European entrepreneurship, is why there are not larger tech companies in Europe. Because I think one of the ways in which the system works is the larger companies and the smaller companies coexist because people go back and forth. We know the European talent is incredible, right? So we should be able to produce these very large global companies out of Europe. And maybe that's a financing issue, or maybe it's a cultural issue, or maybe there's some regional rule. Sometimes the European Union's rules uh, go against startups. If you talk to startups in the European Union, they're subject to rules, uh, the uh, privacy rules, for example, that the U.S. are not. And to some degree, those are inimicable to growth for startups. So again, I, I would be careful about these claims. If I were European, what I would do right now is I would say, I want to compete hard with Beijing and with mm -hmm. Silicon Valley and California mm -hmm. in general. And I want the following 12 things done. I want the financing. I want changes in legislation and so forth. And by the way, the, the one that's growing fastest is Beijing. Yeah, I think that's a still ongoing discussion, I guess, also that's be held in uh, in the European Commission. Uh, but that's maybe uh, a discussion for, for another time. I wanted, you wanted to add something? Yeah, no, what I was going to say is that, that I spent quite a bit of time, and I know you have as well, talking to entrepreneurs around Europe, and the creativity and the quality is exceptional. Right. So there's no there's not a talent issue. There's something else. Right. And maybe with a little bit of work during the pandemic, because Europe has done relatively well in the pandemic mm -hmm. compared to the United yeah, States. That's true. Um, and so perhaps this is an opportunity. Perhaps there's a window. Mm -hmm. Right. You, 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 you gain advantage when your competitors are stumbling. Right. So here's a case where Europeans, in my view, have an advantage. If they if they choose to focus on this, yeah, I mean, you know, we are very lucky here in Germany that we got like some of the infection rates down. But I wanted to come back to something that we can see uh, right now um, happening during the pandemic, which is uh, spread of conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, anti-vaxxers, uh, which is really uh, kind of incredible uh, to see. People are like kind of not trusting science anymore. We see like an eroding trust in science. How do we need to address that as a society? Well, there's a whole bunch of things, but the first thing that's interesting is to watch the way it works. So the stereotype is you have somebody who's, uh, he or she is struggling, they lost their job, they're unhappy, they watch a video on YouTube or they see a video on Facebook, the person is telling them something important and they tell them a secret. It is a secret that these people are opposed to the mainstream. And they become interested in this, and then they study it for, on using their own terms, and then they become proselytizers. They become the next generation. And that's how these things spread. And a lot of the weird conspiracy stuff seems to be coming out of the anti-vaxxer movement. So there's something about the anti-vaxxer movement which is sort of intrinsic to human beings. And uh, th there's lots of things to say about the social media's role on this, but the fact of the matter is this is a human thing, and we have to fight it. Last time I checked, 
Science still worked. <laughs> Physics still governed the universe. The earth goes around the sun and all of those other things that people worried about. Uh, in the United States, I'm sure Germany doesn't have these. We have insane conspiracy theories on mm -hmm. the right and the left where they talk about eating babies and, you know, secret cabals and so forth and so on. Yeah, we have and it's a waste. Well. Of, yeah. You do. Well, <laughs> uh, it's a waste of my time trying to understand what they believe because there's no facts. So if you've got some facts, show up and otherwise, please shut up. Yeah, I, I wanted to not, come you, not you. I'm referring no, to. I'm, I'm, I'm referring I'm, to. Sorry, <laughs> 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 <All right>, <laughs> So I wanted to come back to something that you said in your answer, which is like the you know the responsibility of platforms, or you know like the discussion around the responsibility of platforms in kind of spreading misinformation. You know, it's like an ongoing debate that's not started with the pandemic, but it's like going on for a while now, which is while you know, creating the great benefits for, for society and distributing a lot of information, also distributing misinformation at the same time. Do you have any regrets or lessons here or responses to that kind of assessment? Well, I can tell you my story. Um, the American view that basically all speech was good speech and that the way you solve bad speech was by having more speech. The problem with that argument is that There are people who are reasonably crazy who now will spend all of their time promoting false theories because they believe in them. It's what they actually believe, and they're very and they, they really are dangerous. The most dangerous of all are terrorist cells. And so for many, many years, Silicon Valley basically believed that it was much better to just get everything out there and let it sort out. I think that the new understanding from all of Silicon Valley is that this is not an effective strategy. Mm -hmm. And the core reason is that emotional content is, tr is traded and shared um, at a rate of seven to 10 times more than normal stuff. Right. You know, you, you would write a normal paragraph, a well-reasoned argument, nobody pays attention. But if you say, oh my God, the theater is on fire, which you shouldn't say, um, everyone sort of spreads that and oh my God. And so the interesting thing, so I think there's a general acceptance of this fact now. What is interesting to me is that the that the coronavirus is the first time that collectively all of the social media companies have begun to take down harmful information. So there was some line which involved death, right? In other words, if you're promoting false cures and people are dying, the companies were not willing to allow that spread. So now we need to find where that new line is. And people disagree where the line is, but the precedent has been set that evil and harmful content that will kill people is not allowed on our platforms. Right. I wanted to come to a question from the audience that I got here through Slido, and it's from Robert Anders, and he asks, what is your take on Google's responsibility on making new technologies less addictive for its users? Well, you know, the incentives in the Valley, I'd rather not talk about specific Google questions. Um, I'm no longer an employee, but I'm a large shareholder. Um, so, so the way, the way startups and the way the Valley works is the products are focused on getting more end users and the way they get end users is they typically use viral recruiting strategies and they make the sort of uh, rapid reinforcement strategy, you know, oh my God, look at this. Oh my God, look at this. Oh my God, look at this. And you become addicted, if you will, you know, to that information stream. And, uh, you know, look at a group of people now at a restaurant. And I remember when we would sit in a restaurant and we would actually talk to each other. Now everyone has their phones out. 
And uh, the same is true in elevators and so forth and so on. So I think that the incentives are in alignment for uh, essentially very high usage. And at some point, the companies have got to say, okay, this is enough. You'll see there are uh, there are attempts to use, you know, give you tracking for how much you've used it and things like that. I, I wanted to come to another question here, uh, which is kind of, you know, going into some of your learnings during your career, uh, which obviously had like a, a very long career. When you look back... Well, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't over yet. <laughs> it, it, it's not, no. I, uh, uh, when you look Go back ahead, at your... At, <laughs> This is such a weird situation over Zoom. Okay, so so when you look back uh, at your career and what you've done and achieved so far, you just mentioned that your career is not not over yet, which is uh, totally true. What's your number one key learning? Uh, you know that you would definitely do again. Well, I made the right decision in joining Google and working with Larry and Sergey, with whom, from whom, and with whom I learned a lot. Um, I, I've discovered I have a belief system, and that belief system is software and a tritable that is replicated hardware using state-of-the-art networks to solve interesting problems. Um, I've also discovered that a lot of people say yes when I say that, but they don't actually they don't actually understand what it means. So it means instead of building one large ship, you build a lot of little ships. Instead of having one large computer, you have a lot of little computers that are linked together, right? So, so the whole notion of distributed, distributed processing, distributed computing, and so forth is profound. And because of the way our political system works, we tend to think of unitary and single solutions rather than network power. So the, the, the more general point is, instead of trying to figure out how to build one thing, try to build an awful lot of little things that then you then spread out. The most successful businesses, by the way, are ones where you build a platform and the other people contribute the content rather than you producing all the content. So what you've got to do is you've got to say to yourself over and over again, how do I harness the power of a network, which is understood to be decentralized, understood not to be completely under control, and you get much greater scalability from that. And that's the core learning. And when I look at other problems in the world as a philanthropist, virtually all of them fail that test. They have some centralized control point. They have a, a government, which is a monopoly, um, or they have some centralized computing approach or some, some centralized dogma, rather than allowing for personal freedom and expansion and innovation. That's the thing I've learned that's the most important. And I think what people, you know, find really impressive uh, within Google is how you actually created a culture that's, you know, kind of breeding, well-changing ideas, innovation still at, you know, at, you know, at the point Google is right now. It's a huge company. It's a very large company, but it's still, you know, so, so innovative. So, so talk about how you actually, you know, installed this culture or how you created this culture and what other entrepreneurs can learn from that. Well, when we started, the most important thing that we did is we hired the smartest people we could find, and we were pretty brutal on that. And we also hired people without a lot of experience. And the reason we hired them without experience is we didn't need it. What we needed was their their sort of horsepower, if you will, the men and women who could move very, very quickly. And that strategic flexibility is really important in a company because companies develop dogma. They, they develop this is the way, and then they miss the next thing. The next thing that we did is we built a culture that was a unification of top-down and bottom-up. 
So the bottom up was people could work on whatever they wanted. And the bottom and the top down was we were reviewing it all the time. And we would spend hours and hours reviewing these ideas and trying to improve them. Um, it's that flex strategic flexibility and the quality of the workforce and the fact that it was in software that makes the difference. What's interesting now, by the way, is that the hardware world is also becoming more flexible. It's becoming possible to build very fast design studios. And it's, it's actually possible to imagine a startup now that builds a piece of hardware that can be 3D printed that's really profoundly powerful. And I'm familiar with a whole bunch of startups that are doing hardware things that, that look like software to me. And I have another question from, from the audience that goes uh, into that topic. What is the one skill that, that you would recommend people to learn today? Well, in general, what I would say to people is develop analytical skills because pretty much everything that a young person is going to address in the future will involve some kind of analytical skills. And by analytical, I mean the ability to draw causation, to say this is larger than that. Maybe this claim is a false claim. And I'm worried about this because I think that you're going to see an explosion in false marketing. It's going to get easy, easier and easier and easier to tell your story, mm -hmm. uh, partly because AI will make it easier, partly because it'll be easy to have uh, false narratives and false pictures and so on and so on. But with those sort of analytical skills, a citizen should be able to do it. And that's also where the jobs are going to be. Mm -hmm. As a technical matter, the way I answer that is try to basically get through calculus. Because if you can get through calculus, you can get through anything. And that's a pretty good piece of advice for people. Um, and, and Thomas Hartmann wants to know, what's your best guess what Europe needs to change to get competitive against Silicon Valley and Beijing? There's a set of things that are important. One of the problems with Europe is that the universities are underfunded relative to the American universities. So the graduate programs, which typically are where this talent comes out of, are underfunded by quite a bit of money. So I would start by saying that the future growth of Europe is not going to be because of regulation, and it's not because of the traditional industries. It's because Europe will innovate. And then innovation comes from largely graduate school research, graduate students doing research. Europe is a leader, for example, in pharmaceuticals. There, there are plenty of examples where mm -hmm. Europe is uh, Europe is a. But all of the European growth is fundamentally going to come from extremely high gross margin innovations that will be led in Europe. There's no reason to think Europe can't do this. So I would start with universities. Uh, there's plenty of money now, although it's harder to get still. Um, and then I think the other thing would be to do a regulatory review, which goes something like this. I've always argued that in Europe, your labor laws are too restrictive for small companies and that there should be some rule that goes something like this. You can have a small company that aside from health and safety is exempted from the rules up until size 20, right? And at 21 employees, then you're subject to these rules. And the reason is you need more at-bats. You need to create more entrepreneurs. So I think if you fund more universities and you create more entrepreneurs, you'll get the necessary uh, economic structure for some of these huge companies to emerge. And by the way, I'm not suggesting to avoid the European regulation. I'm just suggesting that there be a carve-out for tiny companies mm -hmm. to avoid. I remember in France, we were working hard on this. And maybe in the future, the, the U.S. will let me back into France and France will let me back in, <laughs> let an American into France, which is a separate subject. Uh, but in France, the, the hardest thing were the hiring laws in terms of the delays for hiring your first employee. 
and there was evidence that it was up to 60 days. You can't run it. You can't found a startup if the second and third person you're going to hire each take 60 days, right? So, uh, and there's nothing wrong with these rules. Well, maybe there is, but there's nothing wrong with these rules for the purposes of a startup, except that they should be capped. There should be some exemption above which they're applied. Yeah, that, that's certainly good news here for us at Bits and Pretzel, since we have many founders and startup founders here uh, in our audience. Uh, thank you so much, Eric Schmidt, for this great conversation. Uh, hopefully see you again soon in person and have a chat in person. All right. That was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and sign up for our podcast. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever they have good podcasts. And next week, we have another highlight for you on the show. I'm talking with former basketball player Dirk Nowitzki about his amazing 20 plus years career in the NBA. And the basketball star shares his view on how to stay grounded and humble under pressure and what entrepreneurs can learn from professional athletes. See you there.